Thank you, brother, very much for that. Mark 9, 33 through 37 is where we'll be this morning, and this is what it says. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all, and the servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him up in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Well, thank you again very much for coming this morning. I want to thank everybody also who makes the service like this go um, so smoothly and so well. There's a lot of different people that come together to make uh, church happen this morning. So thank you again, Seth. Thank you again to the Russells. I think also we've got Mark Mills out there. I'm sure he can hear me through the speakers. Uh, he's the one providing security for us today. So thanks to everyone who's helping this happen. We are all grateful for you. Mankind has always chased after greatness. As a society, we recognize greatness, actually. We honor greatness. We reward greatness in society. We're taught from so many different outlets, actually, in life that we must strive to make ourselves great. Great by becoming faster, stronger, prettier, smarter, leaner, richer, so that we can be recognized for doing such, for being such, and be rewarded for that accordingly, right? Some of the highest paid people in our world are professional athletes. We reward them for being so skilled at running. We reward them for being able to throw like they throw or having that raw talent like they have or having that speed and agility that they have. We recognize them, we honor them, we reward them as a society. Some of the most famous women in our world have been queens and princesses and models and actresses. We reward them for being so beautiful. We honor them for being so elegant. We recognize them for um, being able to just to take us in by their performances if they're actresses. Some of the most famous minds in our world are people like doctors, inventors, scientists, entrepreneurs. We reward them with leadership positions. We reward them with statues sometimes. And of course, we reward them with money, right? There's just always been a big temptation to focus on self and self-greatness in our society and in our world. It's always been there. Always, ever since the fall, there's been a focus to, an unhealthy focus on self, self-greatness, self-focus. 
and the focus on self, however, will result in the opposite of true greatness in the end. We're told that is what you need to pursue very hard. Your own greatness, as we define greatness in the world, and you'll get to the end realizing that it all fades. All this greatness that I just described to you fades. True greatness in God's eye will be the focus of our text today. That's why I've titled the message this morning, How to Be Truly Great. Because you want to be truly great. I want to be truly great. It's in me, but we pervert it. We always pervert the good things. We always do. Even love for self is understood in the scriptures. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. He knows you love yourself, and there is a right way to love yourself. But what he means by there, of course, is caring for yourself, feeding yourself, taking good, proper steps to make sure self is how it needs to be. So he already knows that you love yourself, but we always pervert that. We take it further and more sinful. We do that with all of God's good, good, good gifts, all of them. We always mess them up. I want to pray that we won't mess up this time, though. I want to pray that our hearts will be right and where they need to be. So will you bow with me again before we get into the text this morning? <clears throat> Father, we need your help right now. We need your help to focus on your word, to receive it as we ought. Lord, I want to also pray against distractions. Lord, if these people sitting before me are anything like me, their minds tend to wander sometimes so far. I pray against that. I pray that you would please give us focus at this time. Please, please, Lord, cause us to focus and have the word impact us. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Your word will also do what you've set it out to do is what you tell us in your word. It will accomplish that for which you have sent it. And I pray that you would send the truth in our hearts this morning, Lord, and cause us to be changed by your truth. Don't let any of us go out these doors the same as we came in. Please, Lord, help us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our text, let's look at that together. If you don't have your Bible with you, the text will be behind me on the screen up there. Again, remember we're in Mark 9, 33 through 37. And I want you to notice how the text starts. Look how it starts. Just those first five words. And they came to Capernaum. Now, Jesus has already been in Capernaum before. If you're not very familiar with the geography of Israel, don't worry. Um, as you know, Israel's shaped like my hand. It's kind of broken up into the three parts. Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Up in Galilee, there's a town called Capernaum, and they're still in the northern region of Israel where Jesus is focusing all of his ministry right now. He's not started to travel south yet towards Jerusalem, not just yet. They've been to Capernaum before. This would be a familiar place because there's actually a house there that they've been in before as well. Look at the rest of verse 33. And he was in, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? The house. This is not just a um, 
article, like a house, it's the house, right? This is more than likely, we don't know for sure, it could be Peter's house, it may have even been Jesus' house, because back in Mark chapter 2, we believe we've been in this exact same house before, because in Mark chapter 2, you might recall that they were in, it said in Mark chapter 2, his house. And that was the house that was so crowded with people all around when Jesus was in there teaching and preaching and that four men came with their paralyzed friend desiring to get in and remember what they did to his house? They started unroofing the roof. They started taking the roof off to lower their friend and they did and Jesus healed the paralyzed man and he got up and walked away. We don't know, was this Peter's house, Jesus' house, we're not sure. Jesus did have a house growing up, I'm sure. But remember, he eventually left that because someone comes to him later on in his ministry and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what's he say to that man? Foxes have holes, birds of the air has nests, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There came a point when Jesus was homeless. There came a point when Jesus led by example and abandoned all that he had in order to fulfill what God had for him. So, I want you just to kind of notice, though, that we go from Capernaum, a town, now to a house. Capernaum, a town, now to a house. Then, they're in the house. And Jesus has a question for them. Jesus' questions can be questions to provoke thought, or they can be questions to point at something, right? Jesus is really good at asking questions, and they're always intentional. They're always for helping you in some way. This question, however, wouldn't get an answer, but he says to them, what were you discussing on the way? Sometimes Jesus will ask questions. Well, I'll say this, actually. I don't know even why I said sometimes. Always Jesus asks questions knowing the answers to those questions. Just like we saw in Genesis Early on in Genesis, after Adam and Eve's sin, we get a question from God. Adam, where are you? Remember that question? You know why God asked that question? Because he had no idea where Adam was, right? And no clue. Of course not. What did he want from Adam? He wanted a confession. He wanted him to pipe up and say, here I am and, and, and I was hiding because I did this, this, this bad thing. Jesus asked them this question, not because he didn't know, but because he knew, and he wanted them to come clean. Well, do they do that? He asked them this question, what were you discussing on the way, knowing full well that what they were discussing on the way, they would not want to admit what they were discussing? And so they don't give him an answer. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent. We really have two choices when it comes to answering questions. We either, well, three really. Of course, we can answer it and lie. We can not answer. We can sort of sugarcoat it in one way. And this is usually the, the, the preferred method of man. We, we like to sugarcoat things, and we like to make it sound not quite as bad as it was. We have tactics of doing this. I remember hearing an interview once. I don't remember if it was the pregame or the postgame interview with this NBA player and they were asking him questions, and I even forget the NBA player. Let's just say LeBron James, because he's all of our favorite NBA player right now. 
Let's say it was just LeBron James. And he worded something in a certain way to make it not sound so selfish and self-focused. Because had he said it the right way, it would have sounded like, wow, you are, you are really focused un, in an unhealthy way on yourself, which we know most of them are anyway. Most of us are anyway. So he worded it this way. He spoke in third person. He said, LeBron James has to do what's best for LeBron James. And that doesn't sound quite as bad as saying, I've got to do what's best for me. That sounds a little more selfish, doesn't it? That sounds a little more unhealthy. I've got to do what's best for me. But if I word it in third person, I sort of sugarcoat it. Make it sound like, oh, LeBron James has to do what's best for LeBron James. And the disciples, instead of even trying to sugarcoat it, they just said, we'll just not say anything because we know with whom we're speaking. You might as well not sugarcoat this. So they kept silent. Well, Mark lets us know what they were talking about on the way. This was why they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Do you see how that would have been very... It wouldn't have sounded good to answer that question, would it? Oh, Jesus... Well, since you asked, we were arguing about which one of us was the best, was the greatest. I said this because, well, obviously, these reasons. And he said this because of these reasons. And then he said this, but as you see, my reasons trump his reasons. So that's what we were talking about. Once you say sometimes out loud to someone else what was actually going on you realize how bad it was you realize how foolish it actually was and that's what we have here each one of them was focused on self and self greatness instead of Jesus and Jesus's greatness and that was their downfall they were focusing on self and self-greatness instead of Jesus and Jesus' greatness. And that's really all of our downfalls. But especially as leaders, who were these men? These weren't just average men. These were future leaders of the early church. These were the ones that Jesus was going to be building his early church on. Very important men. Very important men. Men whom God would change into great men because their greatness would come through Christ. Now, as leaders, as future shepherds of God's flock, I want you to see how the Lord's already dealt with this subject before. The Lord, the Lord has already dealt with how self-focus in God's leaders, leaders of God's people, is very destructive. Look with me at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. Something sort of like this has already happened in the past with God's Old Testament leaders, old, God's Old Testament shepherds who he put over his people to teach his people, to guide his people. 
And he uses the analogy of a shepherd and sheep when talking about these people and showing them their great fault. And I want you to see that what led to their downfall here was a focus on self. Look at this. Look at this. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. As you know, Ezekiel was one of God's prophets, and God speaks through his prophets. And really, the prophets came about because of sin. Prophets were primarily there to get people back to God, which just shows you also God's patience and care for us. Don't you see that? He didn't send judgment straight away. He said, I'm going to send people to help them get back on the right way. So just know if you're sitting here this morning and you know you've really dropped the ball in some area recently, badly. Maybe even other people don't know about it. Only you and God. I want to let you know, this morning, God's also caring for you and speaking to you through his word and saying, you can come back. You can repent. Now, sometimes, though, there are consequences for our sin, right? There are, and we have to face those. But God can remove any consequences that would keep you from him. And so that's good. That's good news. That's good news. So know if you're sitting here this morning having totally messed up, I've been there. I know what that feels like. I also know how good repentance and coming clean feels. And sometimes you've got to come clean with people, too. That's hard. But the reward on the other side is great. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, focus on self, with the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? See, his focus is, you've been focusing on yourself, well, you're supposed to be focusing on others, leaders. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Let's keep going. Verse three, you eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Remember, I'll show you here later on, it's, it becomes more clear. He's not just talking about shepherds and sheep. It's just an analogy. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep, notice he says my sheep now, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. It's a reference to worshiping false gods, by the way. They always worship them on the high places, is what it said in the Old Testament. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Look at verse 7 now in Ezekiel 34. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord. He's swearing now by himself. He's saying, as I live, declares the Lord. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, self-focus, and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their 
feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. He says, since you've been focusing on yourself, the consequences are the sheep have been scattered. They're going astray. Any leader, when you focus on self, you're affecting those under you. And guys, this is, this is for any leader in any type of leadership. If you're, if you're a Christian and you're in any type of leadership in any way, maybe at your work, maybe with your children in your home, grandchildren, all of us, almost all of us, I should say, we have little ones in here, are, are leaders in some way. And if you're not yet, you will be. Any focus on self hurts the ones you're leading. Any focus on self hurts the ones you're leading. This is why Jesus starts to attack this so hard. It's because these were future leaders of the new church that he was going to be building. It was very important that they get this right and that they not focus on self-greatness, but on Jesus and his greatness. Look at Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. We, in our society, like I mentioned, we like to honor and give attention and money to people who are really smart or really strong or really um, rich, right? We like to just say, wow, look at these people. And those people boast in those things. Yeah, I'm a great athlete. Yeah, I'm really smart. Yeah, I'm really rich. Look what the Lord said through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. What, Lord? Tell us. What should we boast in? That he understands and knows me. That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So this is not anything new that the disciples are doing, right? This is not anything new for mankind. Mankind has been boasting in his greatness. If they were arguing on the way about who was the greatest, they were making comparisons. To make your argument, we say, is to build your case. Even in the court of law, we, they use that, those phrases or in debates. He gave his argument. He built his case. They would have been building their case for why they were the greatest. Now look at these qualities in me. That's why I'm the greatest. And of course, Peter said, yeah, but you can't talk like me. He would have said that, right? And then there would have been the, the two brothers, James and John. Well, he calls us the sons of thunder. And that seems pretty important. That seems like a big deal. Has he given any of you nicknames? I don't think so. And they would have compared each other. This is why I'm the greatest. And, Jer and, and they would have known this verse in Jeremiah. They're good Jews. They would have been taught the scriptures from childhood, especially as men. They would have been required to go to a school to learn the prophets and the Torah. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And that's what they were doing. This is why I'm better than you. 
It sounds foolish when you say it that way, doesn't it? But that's what they were doing. And now let's see what happens. So remember, they're in the house, in Capernaum. And now look at verse 35. We get three different verbs here at the beginning of verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them. Sits down, calls the twelve, says to them. In our culture, if I want to get someone's attention because I'm about to say something important, what we do in our culture is usually stand up, turn around, and face everyone. Even if I haven't said anything yet, people know at that point, oh, he's about to address us. He's about to say something. Let's all be quiet because, look, he has something to say. That's how we show that I'm about to say something that I'd like you to listen to. Rabbis back in Jesus' day, they actually did the opposite. When they were about to teach, they sat down. They sat down and called people to them. That was the signal, oh, we need to be quiet and listen up. He's about to say something important. So isn't it interesting, the different cultures that we have? That's why he sat down. That was the signal. Listen, I'm about to say something to you. I'm about to teach you. So we get Jesus sitting down, calling the 12, and then speaking to them. I want you to take note of this. He sat, he called, he said. He positioned himself to teach them. He then called them to him. He proclaimed the truth to them. Notice everything needed for their advancement in grace and truth is initiated by Jesus. Everything for their advancement in grace and truth was initiated by Jesus. Do you see that? The key to greatness doesn't come from you. It comes from God. The key to greatness doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Jesus initiated all of this. Jesus always initiates any relationship and grace, any advancements in those areas are always initiated by Jesus. So notice, the focus of attention has been drawn a little bit tighter also by Mark. We started in Capernaum. We went into a house. Now the attention is a group of men circled up around Jesus. Well, Jesus probably would have been circled up with them. So we go from Capernaum to a house, now to a circle of men, don't we, in our text. He's drawing the attention a little bit tighter here. We're getting focused, focused, focused. And what does he say here? This is teaching on discipleship again. We saw last week that there's a pattern. Jesus pronounced his death, burial, and resurrection. There was some failure on the part of the disciples. Then there's teaching on discipleship. We're going to see that three different times in the book of Mark. We already saw the first time in Mark chapter 8. Now this is our second one. So this whole section is about him beginning to teach about true discipleship. And he starts just like he started the last one with a if-then statement. Remember Mark chapter 8? If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. We saw that um, over a month ago in Mark 8. It was an if-then statement. If then do this. Here we have it again. If anyone would be first, the then is implied. If anyone would be first, then he must be last of all and servant of all. 
If you want to be great, you guys are so concerned with being great. If anyone would be first, he uses that word first because it's like first in position, number one. You guys are talking about who's the greatest, who's number one. You're so concerned about being first, then do this. Because he's saying your desire to be first, you've perverted it. Let me tell you how to actually be great. Your desire to be great isn't a bad desire. You just end up making it bad. Jesus wants you to be great. And he's telling you how to be great. You want to be great? I know you do. I know all of you want to be great in some way. In some way. Maybe that desire has dwindled over the years, perhaps. Maybe you're like, well, that's not just going to happen anymore. But you still want to be great in some way. I know you do. In some way, you still want to be recognized as I mean, who doesn't like to be told, wow, you're really good at that? Who doesn't like to hear that? You want to be great. You know how good it's going to feel, though, on the last day? To hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be the praise you're going for, because that's really the only one that's going to matter. The Bible says the grass withers The flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Everything's going to fade. You know those athletes that are really good right now? They're fast, they're strong, they're talented. Guess what? When they're 90, they're not going to be fast or strong anymore. LeBron James at 90, if he makes it that old, do you think he's still going to be able to slam dunk a ball? No, he's not. Everything that was making him great in society's eyes will be gone. Young ladies who are so beautiful right now, who we put up on a pedestal, and who all the guys say, wow, she's so beautiful. Guess what? One day, she's going to be, in the world's eyes, very ugly. She's going to be wrinkled and flabby, and have hair growing in places that she doesn't want hair growing there. On her face and chin. She's, and we're going to then say, not so pretty. Not so pretty. It all fades. The richest man, the owner of Amazon right now. Do you know his net worth is over $100 billion with a B? He was the first... What do they call it? It's like the Latin word for 100. It's like centi. It's like he was the first, I think they call it centi billionaire, which means over 100 billion. Well, at least that we know of in our age. I mean, Solomon may have been richer. But guess what? He's going to die. And I don't care how much money we put in his coffin, he doesn't take it with him. It's all fading. All the world's greatness is fading. This greatness, though, that Jesus is telling you about, when you're 90, this kind of greatness is what's going to matter. This kind of greatness is what God's going to look at and say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. If anyone would be first, Tell us, Jesus, how should we be first? 
He must be last. Last. He's saying, don't be so concerned about being first. Remember what Ezekiel, God said through Ezekiel, made these leaders bad leaders? You're focusing on self and not the flock, not your people. They're wounded and you're not binding them up. They're scattered and you're not searching after them. They're hungry and you're not feeding them. You want to be great? Invest into people, he's saying. Go after people and make them see them as more important than yourself. Prefer that they're served before you. Make sure they're doing better than you are. Put them in first position. Parents, you get this. There's something happens when you become a parent. It's it's already in us anyway to to want to sacrifice for those that we deem more important. That should be in us. Even non-believers have that. Even even non even a non-believing mom or dad who's worth their salt in any way would push their child out of the way of a speeding car and take the blow. There's something in us as parents that says, my children are more important than me. My children are better than me. I need to preserve them before I preserve me. If you were in a doctor's office and the doctor came in and said, wow, this is crazy. This has never happened. Both of you have this very rare disease. It's fatal. You're the only two cases that have ever had it on planet Earth. We were able to make one antidote just for one of you, and it will never be made again. This is the only one in existence. You would not even let the doctor finish the sentence. You would say, give it to my child. If we're both going to die, there's one antidote that could save one of us. I wouldn't even let him finish the sentence. I mean, would you even have to think about that? If he, if he left, if he said, I'll give you some time to think about which one of you wants the, and you actually even thought about it, you'd be a bad parent because it's in you as a parent to put your children first. You're supposed to do that. That's right and good. And that's why it's so bad for these future leaders to be saying, I'm better than you. He's saying, you want to be great? Be last. Be last. See others as more important than yourself. Prefer that others get served before you. Make sure they have everything they need. Be last of all and servant of all. This is how you do it. He not only tells us, be last, he kind of gives us some commentary on what the last looks like. A servant. Be a servant of all. And Jesus was the perfect example of this, wasn't he? Jesus is the perfect example of this. They don't have to wonder what it looks like. They can just look at Jesus. Later on in the book of Mark, we're going to see in Mark chapter 10. Is everybody still with me? I'm going to pull a Charles Stanley here. If you're listening, say amen. Okay, there you go. That's a Charles Stanley thing. Mark 10, Jesus is going to get on this topic again and uh, flesh it out a bit more. But he's going to say in uh, verses 44 and 45, whoever will be first among you must be the slave of all. Basically saying the same thing, just a few different words, right? Instead of servant of all, he says slave of all, which really is the same word in the Greek. It's the word doulos. It means slave. Then he says this after. Okay, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then verse 45 of Mark 10, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, you want to know what this looks like? He says, even me. And it's interesting that he used the word even, but it makes perfect sense. Because he's God. He says, even I, even me, the Lord Jesus of heaven and earth who created everything. I was there with the Father. We were doing it together because the Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He was there creating everything with the word of his power. And he says, even me, even the Son of Man came not to be served. He should have been served, shouldn't he? When the Son of Man came, he should have been served. He should have been. That would have been right. Because we're made to glorify God and enjoy him forever and serve him. He says, even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. How did he show this in another way? Remember when he, in the book of John, washed the disciples' feet? He takes off his robe, we're told, He wraps a towel around his waist, and he starts washing all of their feet. Peter, of course, says, not so, Lord. You'll you'll never know wash my feet. Why would he have that reaction? Because this was not the actions of a rabbi leader. These were the actions of a low servant. And Peter says, oh, I'm not down with this, Jesus. This is not the right position for you. And he was showing them what they're actually supposed to be like. He was also showing a great picture of what happened when he came. Taking off the robe signifies taking off that glory that he was in forever. Wrapping the towel around his waist signifies wrapping human flesh on himself. And then coming down and washing their feet signifies coming to be that servant on planet Earth with us. Beautiful, beautiful. And so he is and will give them the perfect example of this. Watch me. Do it like I do it, is how he's saying. Must be last of all and servant of all. Then he gives them a visual illustration. Good teachers know that we don't just learn with our ears. We we learn through visuals too. Any of the senses you can incorporate in teaching is good for us. He says this, look at this in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. Well, now Mark has now drawn the attention even tighter. Went from Capernaum to a house, to a group of circled up men. And then now we hear that there's now a child in the midst of them. A child in the middle of the circle. See how Mark is intentionally drawing the focus tighter and tighter here. A child that no one was focusing on before. Now Jesus wants everyone to focus on him. Where'd this child come from? We don't know. In cultures like this, we were missionaries and um, it was houses were kind of set up in where, where we were, kind of like they are here. The doors and windows were open for a lot of the day because it's just so hot. It would have been that way back in Jesus' day. Windows would have been open. Doors would have been open most of the day, probably. And maybe this child was leaning through the window listening. Maybe, because we know from Luke especially, Luke really points this out, women. There was a, there was a good handful of women that also followed Jesus around as 
his followers. There were not the 12, of course, but just other followers of Jesus. Maybe one of the women had a child. We don't know, but that's not the focus. The focus is there was a child there, and Jesus grabbed the child and put the child in the midst of them all. The child that no one was focusing on before. Now Jesus wants everyone to focus on. And then he says he took him up in his arms. Mark's drawing the focus even tighter. Capernaum, the town. A house in the town. A circle of men within the house. A child within the circle. A child in Jesus' arms. And doesn't that just show the affection of Jesus? Doesn't it? Like, for example, hey, Benjamin, can I get you to come up here for a second? You're not in trouble at all. He's like, what is going on? This was not planned. You don't have to put your shoes on. It's fine. I'm just going to get you to come up here. So this is probably how it looked. Just come up here and stand with Daddy. He doesn't mind these things. So in my mind, this is probably what it looked like with Jesus. Jesus probably started, got the child, pulled the child here, probably a hand on each shoulder, and said, I want all of you to look at this child. Okay, by the way, for our visitors, he's my child. I'm not just grabbing some random child. Yes, I have five. Yes, we have a TV. Yes, we know what causes it. He would have put the child here, I'm thinking, something like this, in the middle. But then he would have done something different. He would have done something different at this point. Then he does this. He takes the child up in his arms like this. And he says, any one of you who receives a child such as this in my name receives me. You want to say hey to everybody, Benjamin? I mean, this just shows Jesus is in my mind. This shows Jesus' love, affection, care. Thank you, buddy, so much. His love and care and affection for this child. You don't, you don't take a child up in your arms that you don't care about. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, this child that you guys probably didn't think was very significant, very special, very great, I will now show you what I think of this child. I'm going to pick him up in my arms, and we're going to talk about him. Whoever, verse 37, receives one such child in my name receives me. What does he mean by that? Whoever receives one such child in my name what does that mean? Well, first of all, receiving one such child. He's not just saying just this child, but a child like this, a person like this, the lowly, the marginalized in our society, these type of people. Because you have to remember in this agrarian culture, children agrarian means like it's like a, a, a group of people that are focused on of farming and growing animals and things like that. you got to know that in a culture like this, children weren't really viewed as being so beneficial just yet. What made you beneficial in a culture like this was, can you work in the fields? Can you help us with these animals? Can you help support the family in some way? That's when you start to kind of be seen as important. Before you're able to work, you're really just kind of seen as one in the house who eats the food and doesn't help there be more food in the house. You're, you're a taker and not yet a giver. And people like that in society just weren't seen as 
so important. You don't really add much to our society just yet, child. You just eat our food. When you get big and strong, then you'll be important. Because then you can start working with daddy, and then you can start bringing in some money, and then you're going to help this society function. Until then, mm. now granted, of course, parents love their children. But just children in general would have been viewed as, you guys don't even work. You don't even work. You can't work. Not much. Not so important yet. Not so important. There's even a time where we're going to see in the book of Mark when the disciples try to chase some children away, try to chase these people away with children. Don't, don't bother the teacher. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. The kingdom belongs to such as these. Bring them here. You don't get it. These People are important to me. Whoever receives one such child, a person like this, any of the lowly marginalized in society also, we know the Bible talks about orphans and widows. The, the marginalized, the lowly in society. In my name, receiving them in my, in my name, what does that mean? Well, because you're my follower. Out of obedience to me. Receiving them in my name. Caring for them because I would want them cared for. Serving them because I would want them served. Doing it in my name. That's what he means there. And he says, whoever does this receives me. What did Jesus say even? If you've done it for the least of one of these my brothers, you've done it for me. There's a serving of the lowly that Jesus takes personally. You've not done it for the least of these my brethren. You've not done it for me. If you've done it for the least of these my brethren, you've done it for me. That's what he talks about in the sheep and goats judgment. Which ties into what he says next. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What does he mean by all this? Whoever takes care of one of these type of people, my father will take care of you. Whoever draws near to one of these people like this, my father will draw near to you. Whoever welcomes in one of these people like this, my father will welcome you in. That's what he's talking about there. There's this closeness of relationship. There's this closeness, this tightness with Jesus and the Father when we're living like Jesus and the Father. When we become, did you know you become like what you worship? You become like what you worship. That's good news for us. If we're truly worshiping God, truly drawing near to God, We'll become more like God. We call that being godly, don't we? That's why we call it that. There's something about a person that's godly that's like God. And don't we want that? How do we get that? Well, let's talk about a few things. But let's, let's look at this slide, though, first, that I made in, in application for this. Because when it comes to doing this and doing this rightly... Don't make it harder than it has to be. It's a lot more simple than we make it usually. Care about those whom Jesus cares about by loving them like Jesus loved them. Serving them like Jesus served them. Telling them the same truth Jesus told them and what Jesus did for them. This is how we fulfill this. This is how we do this. It's not as hard as we usually make it out to be. Whoever the Lord has in your life like that or whoever God's putting on your heart. When we talk about this and I say lowly, 
marginalized in society. Different types of people are coming up in your mind when I say that. Maybe different people even. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe God's going to start leading you to those people. It's going to be slightly different for all of us, yes? This is what we do for them. This is how we care for them in different ways. God's going to use each of your personalities and talents and skills to do this. But this is how we do it. This is how we're considered great. I know you're chasing after greatness. I know you want greatness. Jesus says, this is how you do it. Love people like I love them. Serve them like I serve them. Tell them the same truths I tell them and what I did for them. This is how we be great. The world might never recognize that. In fact, usually, it's very anonymous, isn't it? There have been some people that have done such things that we're going to hear about in heaven, and we're going to be so wowed that the Lord led that person to do that and never told anybody about it. No one. There's been such huge sacrifices made and things done that the world will never know about because people weren't doing it for their own glory. They were serving others. They were putting others above themselves. Like Jesus said, they didn't want the glory. They wanted to glorify God as they helped these people or did this thing in obedience to God. The world won't know about it, but God will. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the fact that you challenge us, Lord. You really challenge us, and you want us to be great. You do want us to be great in the way that you say to be great. But you don't just say, be great. You give us an example. You gave us your own dear son who took the punishment for sinners when he died and shed his blood and rose again from the dead. Faith and repentance in his name is how we are brought into this kingdom of greatness. So, Father, of course, I pray that anyone who has not trusted in you yet would put his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did. He has taken the punishment for sinners when he shed his blood and died. And he's alive now to make intercession for everyone who would repent and believe. So, Lord, we thank you in his name. We ask for help in his name to be like him. And all God's people said,